topic, and then he also spoke to our faculty. So tonight, he is speaking on the pressured child, but Dr. Michael Thompson is a, he even describes himself as a best-selling author, internationally known, and so here he is in Corona Del Mar, which is really a treat for all of us, and I'm glad that you are not missing out. He does have many books um, Best Friends, Worst Enemies is probably the one that many of us have heard of. There's also Mom, you're te They're Teasing Me, not Mom, You're Teasing Me. Raising Cain, I know I read that back when I was teaching fourth grade to figure out my fourth grade boys. Homesick and Happy, which I think is a camp book, right? Yeah, I've listened to a podcast where he talks about camp and then the pressure child, and I believe that that is going to be the most relevant for tonight. So thank you for coming and welcome Dr. Thompson. Thank you, Angie. Thank you very much. I've had a really fun day with four through six and seven and eight and then with the teachers uh, and parents who came at lunch and many of them um, sharing their worries about their uh, children's social lives. Uh, and I wish um, you could have a video of your children defining friendship for me because they just do such a beautiful and touching job. Um, there isn't a fourth grader who doesn't know what true friendship is and they don't actually need you to micromanage their social lives. That's the bottom line because they know what they're after. They don't always succeed in finding the friend they want or being the, the friend they want to be, um, but they really do know uh, what friendship is about. And if you had been in the assemblies, you would hear it. Um, so I was touched and um, sort of exhilarated uh, by, by that today. So I wrote a book called The Pressure Child and this topic brought you out, which means that you're all above average anxious. You're, you're all above average pressured. You're worried about the pressures on your kids. <clears throat> Help me out. Psychologists need to know why you came. So what are the pressures you're worried about with your children? Three or four of you, just come on. Play with me. Please, please, yes. They, uh, uh, the pressure they put on themselves? Yes. Tell me your name. My name's Jennifer. And Jennifer, let's see if this is working. Hold on, how about that? Also, I think, you know, a lot of us live in a community where unfortunately a lot of the older kids um, have been faced with, you know, some of their uh, peers in the high school, you know, making dire choices and we've had suicides in our local high schools and stuff, and when we have young kids that seem like they have a lot of pressure or they seem like they're really worried, we don't want our kids to go down that path, and we right. just want to make sure we're informed. So do you have an 11-year-old girl? I have an 11-year-old um, boy. 11-year-old boy, but yeah. a little perfectionistic, a little super conscientious. Very. Yeah. It's an age where they still believe they can be perfect. Yeah. <laughs> and most of us know those days are long gone. Right. Uh, but at 10 or 11, they, they can really, is he get ferocious with himself and? Just doesn't get like the grade he wanted or doesn't strike out every player or doesn't, you know, 100% just is like 
down on himself. And what's your reaction to that? We have read the book Mind, The Mindset, and we're trying okay. to focus more on the effort and less on the outcome as right, much as right. possible. And that's kind of where we've Because you read Carol Dweck and you're... Yeah. All right. Good, 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 good. Nice. Thank you. Um, so perfectionism, uh, a, a, a kind of a driven perfectionism, it's a reason to be worried uh, about the pressures kids uh, uh, put on themselves. I will talk about some of that tonight. Yes, please. What are you worried about with respect to, uh, respect to pressures? And your name? Burke. Yes. I hear um, Bert. Burke. Burke. B-I-R-K. Close enough. No, come on. I, I... <laughs> B-U-R-K-E. Okay, good enough. Yeah. All right, we're, we're there. Um, I, I worry when she uh, catches on to falsehoods about the pressures of life that aren't even there. And she's how old? They're imaginary. Uh, uh, Ten. Okay. Fourth grade. And she hears things and she starts to... I'm wondering where she finds out that and, you and have to do this, this, and this. Oh, you and have like, to do, do this. And to be a success, to have a good life, you have to do this. Yes. And, yes. And, and does she pick this up from the children of the other people in this room? Uh, uh, that's, that'd be dangerous for me to say that. Yeah, uh, <laughs> um, um, so where does this all start? If it's this, you have to do this, you have to give me an example, Bert. Um, I, I guess, uh, you know, certain activities in class and things like that, that, okay. uh, well, everybody's going to be good at such and such. And I'm like, well, why? Where did you hear that? Well, that, that's just the way it okay. is. And I'm like, really? Well, who said so that? Were you raised in this kind of competitive community? Did you go to a very different kind of school than this school? I, I was raised at private school till, you, till the middle age, I guess. Okay. Um, as was I. And they can be sometimes pretty high-pressure places. They, they can be. And uh, I sometimes have said about independent schools, you know, the walls say, you will go to a good college, you know, and it's like, oh my God, wait, it's, it's embedded in the walls. How do, you, how do you escape it? I mean, I've worked, I went to those schools and I've worked in those schools, but there, there are assumptions about what you have to do uh, that do affect kids at a young age and you think, how do we relieve them of that? I can tell you that's what you want to do. A couple more pressures. Is this bumming you out? Uh, here, tell me your name and what pressure you're worried about. Melissa. Hi, Melissa. My uh, youngest is still here. My other two are in high school. But okay. I'm seeing more of the pressure in high school that the kids are putting on themselves based on what other kids are, classes they're taking, and why that they have to take that journey in order to be successful. Right. All right. And so they've also absorbing the message in a, in, in a highly competitive milieu. And I would say my kids for sure obviously felt going into a public school environment, coming out of a private school environment, that they probably were well prepared. Yes. But, you know, they definitely are being pressured by all, by all types. So Is this a more competitive high school than the one you went to growing up? Actually, I went to CDM. My kids are at Harbor. So okay. I would say they're probably equal, but... I think that the community has changed since I was a kid. It's so. just much more ramped up. Uh, tremendously. Yeah. yeah. All right. And one more. Somebody, what are you worried about? What are the pressures you're worried about? 
We get to hear the competitive environment. Hi. I'm Andrea, and yes, I've got... Yes, I know, because yeah, you've been looking after me all day. This is I, my minder. Yes. You know, when the speaker comes, they give I mean, you... I finally have my chance right yeah, now. Yeah, nice. So. Good. Um, I'm just worried about my fourth grade son. Um, I find that he does tend to be a perfectionist, but he's getting to the point where he's avoiding activities that he doesn't feel like he's going to succeed at. He's not even putting forth any effort or even putting himself out there. Right. This is a very typical defense against failure that you see in boys. Don't try, can't blame me, right? Don't try means my best wasn't good enough. Um, and um, they'll ha he'll have to work his way uh, uh, through it. Um, and you'll have to not panic, okay? Um, because he may do a number of things. He may try his hand at things outside of school where he can star. Um, and he may uh, sort of disparage what the school values. That drives parents nuts. My God, he doesn't share our values, and he's going, to, you know, he's going downhill. Um, but he's thinking: Is there any way to escape this system? Uh, is there any way to come at it from a different angle, so that it doesn't make me feel bad, or like I'm losing on a competitive basis? It's just. It's a, it's a defense against what's required. You know, I, I was uh, once in um, uh, Mexico, and uh, all of these Mexican moms came to me and said, my son has come to me and said, mamacita, my second grade son, has come to me and said, mamacita, I want you to take me home now. I've tried school for three years, kindergarten, first, second, it's time <laughs> I did it. Uh, now, mamacita, take me home, take me home, take me home. And it was hilarious. And what, of course, happens is when you get into school, um, when you get into school, everybody's excited for you in kindergarten that you start and you're doing your letters and you're beginning to read and maybe you're reading a little bit and everybody's pleased. And in first grade, they're even more pleased. And in second grade, you have to produce. You have to read and remember and produce. And kids are thinking, oh, this reading thing is not actually just a ton of fun for which you're going to get compliments. Mama to take me home. I don't want to do this game. And there are certain points in the school journey where kids look ahead and they think, this is a grind and there's a lot more of it to go. And this could make me feel bad. And I'm, I don't like that. And you'll find kids have defenses against school, and that's what I, I think I, I'm hearing. And, but it, he can work his way through that, um, and he can get his feet under him. But it is understandable that I don't care, I'm not interested, is a classic, classic middle school boy defense against the a, a gradually increasing demands for higher quality work more homework, stuff like that. So I'm a clinical psychologist by training. I've been in schools for, I started, I was a classroom, middle school uh, classroom teacher. I warned the fourth, fifth, and sixth graders that I had been a middle school social studies teacher, and if they talked through my assembly, I would nail them. <laughs> so I nailed one pair of girls. That's, I think, uh, a minimum daily requirement for me. Uh, I, they didn't get to nail any seventh and eighth graders. They were incredibly 
incredibly uh, focused and with me. Um, but I've spent all of this time in schools and much of it consulting independent schools, five different uh, schools in the Boston area. Uh, Buckingham, Brown, and Nichols, a K through 12, Concord Academy, once a girl's school, a day in boarding school, the Ecole Bilang, which gradually turned into the International School of Boston, a bilingual French and American school, Charles River School, a progressive K through eight, and then these last years at Belmont Hill, which is an all boys coat and tie, uh, 440 boys, grade seven through 12, a very traditional and demanding school that produces scholar athletes. Well, actually, student athletes. They're not as scholarly as we might think. They're very hardworking. They're very hardworking students. Um, no, that's really in our mission that we produce a scholar athlete. I mean, is that what a burden, huh? Um, and over the years, uh, and many of my examples, there'll be have many more boy examples because I've been at Belmont Hill for quite some time now. I'll meet with a boy who describes a kind of pretty rough, chugging, up, down, frustrating journey to Belmont Hill. Boom, 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 like that. And he's not having a great time. Well, that's, if you're a psychologist in school, you're seeing the kids who are struggling. I mean, there are people who go across the stage at graduation, get all these prizes, and I think, well, that's nice, never met that kid. Never met, never was never in my office, right? I, you, so you, you have to appreciate the perspective of a psychologist. But very often, a boy describes his journey through school as a pretty rugged journey, and then I meet with the parents, and they have written, this will make you feel better, uh, a tuition check to us for $46,000 for a day school, and they describe this beautiful arc, so this rainbow of education ending with a pot of gold with the elite college admissions, right? And they're describing this journey, and the son's having this journey, and, and the parents are baffled. And I say to them, I, what, kind, what was school like for you? Well, you, you know, I expected this to be different, or actually it wasn't that great for me, or I didn't. And I, I, after a while I thought, have parents forgotten what school's like? Are they romanticizing it when you write a big check like that? Do, you know, you engage in a kind of a, uh, I, can, I can buy a paradise on earth for my child? No, school is school. And ultimately, I'd, I'd met so many parents who seemed to have repressed or cherry-picked uh, their own school experience. I, I wanted to write a book to take them back to school. And I wrote a manuscript, the title, my working title was Smarter Than We Think What Kids Know About School That Adults Have Forgotten. And I handed in the manuscript and they gave me that approval that every writer craves. They said, we, we like your manuscript. We hate your title. Uh, we won't publish it under that title, Smarter Than We Think uh, What Kids Know About School Adults Have Forgotten. I, I said, okay, why not? And they said, well, parents won't buy a book that says their kids are smarter than they are. Um, generate some new titles. So I generated a batch and they rejected them all. And um, I generated another batch and they made it clear that they wanted the overpressured child or 
the hyper-pressure challenge. I mean, I didn't like it. It wasn't the book I'd written. I'd written a book about every child's journey through school and what it involved psychologically for a child. So finally, after they rejected 14 titles, I called my editor, Nancy, a woman I very much respected. I said, Nancy, you're just not going to like any of my titles, are you? And she said, of course we are, Michael. And I said, but you've rejected 14. And she said, well, we're just looking for a three-word title that ends in the word child. <laughs> that makes a mother in a bookstore anxious when she reads it. And a subtitle that offers to relieve the anxiety that the title has created. <laughs> she actually said that. And I couldn't check my tongue. I said, that is so formulaic and pedestrian. And she said, maybe, but David Elkind's The Hurried Child has sold more than two million copies. And Stanley Turecki's The Difficult Child is in its 38th printing. And Ross Green's The Explosive Child is doing very well. <laughs> as is Perry Klaus's The Quirky Child. So for marketing reasons, you have the pressured child. But actually, I want you to remember my working title. Smarter than we think what kids know about school that adults have sometimes forgotten or have forgotten. And I realize it when I meet an independent school parent who's raising a child with a plan. And I meet more and more of these people. I've saved a few examples that are just so um, vivid. I was at a school in northern New Jersey. And it was the day after Labor Day in September. I was doing a faculty workshop. And the head of school said, I can't be in your workshops this afternoon. I have to meet with these parents who've been besieging my administrative assistant. But I'll see you at dinner. So at dinner, I said, what was that all about? He said, well, I thought it was one of our families because it was the same name as a large extended family where we've had many branches at the school. But it wasn't. It was a family we didn't know. It was a prospective family. And they needed to talk to the head of school the day after Labor Day to talk about their daughter's admission for next fall for pre-K. <laughs> so this is a year in advance. This is the parents of a three-year-old daughter. And they're, they've got to be there and talking to the head. What's well, a service business? And the head said, why do you want to send your daughter to, I'm not going to use the name of the school. My friend Ned Hallowell refers to all independent schools as Sunnybrook by the Sea. <laughs> so you're pretty close, aren't you, Sunnybrook by the so, um, <laughs> Uh, why do you want to send your daughter to Sunnybrook by the Sea? And the father said, well, I've done the research. Of all of the independent schools in northern New Jersey, you send the highest percentage of your graduates on to Lawrenceville. And of all high schools in the United States, Lawrenceville sends the highest percentage of its graduates on to Princeton. So that's why we're here. Now, I'm not making fun of this father's love for his daughter. He thinks he's doing the best thing for her. Um, but his vision of childhood is it's a career that can be built by putting blocks in place. And if the vigilant father is there a year before pre-K, he can make it happen. Is anybody here from New Jersey? Why, why does Lawrenceville send the highest percentage of its graduates of any high school in the United States to Princeton? They're near one another. They're near one another, and there are a ton of Princeton administrators uh, who send their children to Lawrenceville. And getting into Princeton is purely a meritocracy until it's not. <laughs> OK? Because my little school, which is three miles from Harvard, 
we send more of our boys to Harvard than we should because we have so many Harvard professors and administrators. That's just the way it is, right? So it's not that we don't educate them, prepare them for an education like that. But the, the, the father had, he mixed up geography with, you know, the quality of the elementary school. But he has a plan. And here's the problem with it. We don't know anything about his three-year-old as a student. Notice that I don't say we don't know how bright his three-year-old is. And when I was trained to do IQ tests early as a psychologist, I thought IQ was really important. You only have to have met a ton of really, really high IQ kids who hate school to realize success in school isn't correlated just with IQ. It has to be, you have to have a school brain. You have to like the rewards and the rhythms of school, the tempo, the way it plays out. You have to like being class with a bunch of kids. I've met some kids who are really autodidacts. They're natural self-taught kids, and they find school rather alarming. All these kids making noise, right? Um, so we don't know about his daughter. We won't have a reliable and valid IQ on her until she's six, but we won't know what kind of a student is until she's actually well down the road in her journey through school. But he thinks it can all be put in place. I'll give you another example. A father at Belmont Hill said to me, um, Dr. Thompson, I, I have to talk to you about my son. I said, of course. And he said, uh, I'm very worried about him. I said, of course. What, what are you worried about? He said, he's so disorganized. And I said, in what grade is your son? He said, ninth grade. And I'm thinking, we've got time, right? And I said, well, why are you so worried about a disorganized ninth grader? And he said, globalization. Do you know how many engineers the Chinese are turning out? Do you read Tom Friedman? I said, yes, yes. It's like a religion for me, reading Tom Friedman, <laughs> right? New York Times, the word of God, Tom Friedman, right? And I said to him, uh, tell me, when did you get organized in school? And he said, oh, you don't want to know that. And I, I said, no, actually, I do. He said, honestly? I said, yeah, honestly. When did you get organized in school? He said, junior year in college. And I said, well, why are you so worried about your ninth grade son? He said, I told you, globalization. I told that story at the International School of Warsaw in Poland. Uh, an audience largely of people working for multinational corporations abroad. And I got to the Q&A, or the end of the Q&A, and the father raised his hand and he said, you never answered the globalization question. <laughs> well, I'm a child psychologist, right? I just know that globalization has occurred, but the ninth grade boy brain hasn't changed that much. When did you get your act together in school? College. College. <laughs> when did you get your act together in school? When did you get your act together in school? What? Grad school? <laughs> when did you get your act together? Sophomore year in college. Sophomore year in college. How about you, sir? Fifth year of college. <laughs> the fifth year of college. And you, sir? <laughs> what? Now, I don't ask women because they all say second grade, fourth grade. <laughs> <laughs> but for all of you mothers, of a disorganized middle school boy, 
how does this sound, this little survey I did? Kind of normal but horrifying, isn't it? <laughs> you mean I have to provide scaffolding for this boy you know, all the way into graduate school? When, right? When will he launch, right? I was at Zurich International School, and a mother with a, a Swiss-German accent said to me, um, Dr. Thompson, colleges in the United States are so hard to get into. Well, that wasn't a question, Mr. Stave. Now, she, she had a Swiss-German accent. I imagined that she had gone to university in Switzerland, where there's a small number of universities. But she and her husband had chosen to send their child to an American-led English language international school where most of the kids are gonna to go uh, to college in the US or the UK, but she didn't have a deep knowledge of it. I said, where have you heard that? And she said, all the parents say so. Okay, that's her source of information. I said to her, do you have any idea how many colleges and universities there are in the United States? And she looked perplexed and she'd never thought about it. And she said, 300? And I said, uh, the college board says about 5,600. She said, I wish my husband were here to hear that. Because she had a scarcity model. She, she had a terrible, there are not many colleges. Well, of course, there are 200 highly competitive colleges in the United States. And there are 20 colleges in the United States that everybody in the world talks about. You've got some in this state. We've got some in Massachusetts. But they talk about them in Shanghai and Beijing and Bangkok and Peru and Helsinki. Everybody knows the names of them. And that's what parents talk about. And if you, and there's always this frightening stuff. And anybody ever read Frank Bruni's piece about the admissions at Stanford? Stanford was determined to become the most selective college, so they just didn't admit anybody. They went right to the top. You never read the piece? It's a very funny, very funny piece. Stanford distinguished itself by accepting no one. So now everybody wants to go there. <laughs> um, but he's, of course, teasing a certain kind of ambitious family. And actually, that's what I'm doing, too. And, and now that I'm done with sort of my stories and my teasing, I'm going to try and take you back to school because that's what I did in the pressured childhood. I went back to school with kids. And no sane adult can go back to school. <laughs> Often adults, you say, I'd love to be back in school. You actually mean graduate school, <laughs> maybe college. You know, wake up late, go to your first class at nine, have coffee, go to the library, hang with friends, go to a class in the afternoon, maybe no classes on Friday, right? You're not talking about high school. And certainly no sane adult would ever go back to middle school. Would, and it's just, never, never. It's not that middle schools aren't horrible or cruel. They're just middle school. And your life is very tightly controlled. And you're living in a fishbowl of development and competitiveness. And it's hard. It's hard. Jim Sadler was a head of school. Uh, my tough life, I had to go to the Virgin Islands to St. Croix Country Day. And Jim was uh, just on the edge of retirement, but he told me 
the centerpiece of his leadership, the last head of school I've known who did this, he did all of his own faculty evaluation. 70 teachers, he went to two classes taught by every one of his teachers and possibly three. So he was going to 140 to theoretically up to 210 classes a year, but he rounded it out to about one per school day, about 180 classes a year. But then if you're on the mainland recruiting teachers or dealing with architects, if he's building a new building or board governance or any of the millions of complex things that a head's job involved, he'd miss a day or he'd miss two days. And then he would have to, tr to get back on schedule, he'd have to triple up. And Jim, who was in his 60s said, and whenever I face a day where I have to go to three classes, I dread the day. He said, I get into class and I want to, 20 minutes, I'm restless, I want to get up, I want to walk around, I want to speak out of turn, right? Has anybody here followed a child through a whole school day? Has anybody shattered a child through an entire school day, beginning dead? Yes, please, Susan. Yeah. Who'd you follow? Uh, I, what age, child? I, I followed seventh graders. Yes, and did you stick it out for the whole? Um, Come on. No. <laughs> Right? It is. I, I, and that is part of our job, too, that we do. It's, it is. It's, it's, it, you see what they go through. So give me three adjectives to describe a day with a seventh grader. Uh, uh, um, challenging. Yep. Um, there can be some monotony. Yep. And um, anxious. Challenging, monotony, anxious. Sounds great, huh? <laughs> Most educators, when I ask 100 educators, how many of you have actually followed a child through school? I may get two. Almost always exhausting, overwhelming, so many transitions. So many transitions. So it's like, oh. uh, I had a fifth grade teacher who had planned to have her professional day. She was going to follow a fifth grader in another school. That she'd planned it for months. She said, I went there and I did the morning and then I just left. <laughs> I know I shouldn't have, but I just left. My all-time favorite was a middle school principal in Austin, Texas. And he said to me, he was following an eighth grade boy. At the end of the day, he was sitting there watching the minute hand on the clock. You remember this? <laughs> 10 minutes of three. And he was looking at it, it was not moving. <laughs> and he felt really desperate, and he suddenly had the bizarre thought that he was not going to survive <laughs> unless he stabbed himself with a pencil in the eye. That was his thought. To get through this 10 minutes, I'm gonna to have to stab my, and he said, Dr. Thompson, what was happening to me? I said, one day back in school, and you're thinking like an eighth grade boy, right? <laughs> Having bizarre eighth grade boy thoughts. Do you remember? Do you remember maybe driving a pen in the back of your hand? Remember chewing your nails, sometimes till they bled? Remember your hair, twizzling your hair? Remember that? Or searching as I did my blue uh, cloth-bound notebook to find some square inch that wasn't doodled on so I could doodle so I didn't scream or stab somebody, <laughs> right? Because there are moments, remember this in school? Do you remember, all right? It's hard. A school day is hard. It's hard on your body. It's hard on your psyche. There's so much going on. There's so much going on. And Jim Sadler said to me, I come back into my office. I can't do three of these classes a day. 
And I realize the kids in my school have to do six or seven of them a day, five days a week, 30 weeks a year. And I had once a, a CEO of a business come up to me and said, I go to 30 meetings a week. I said, do you run them? He said, of course I do. I said, that's very different from being in class. Because when you're a student, you're under somebody else's control. The perspective of a student, I was once at American School in London, an eighth grade boy, I said, I'm, I was, did a, um, a, a sort of middle school assembly on uh, pressures, and I said, I'm gonna see your teachers this afternoon, anything you want me to say to them. And this eighth grade boy said, yeah, would you tell them that like not every one of their courses is the center of the world? <laughs> right, do you know what it's like to go from one excited teacher to another? Everyone who wants to rev, rev you up, right? To be excited about their thing, right? And then the teacher writes, you know, if Susie worked harder, she could do better in Spanish. <laughs> well, if we all worked harder, we could do better in Spanish. But Susie's triaging, right? And she triaged Spanish down, and which is what we all did in school. One of the things I learned, and I think is worth talking to you about, two, or really two things I learned in writing The Pressured Child. Incidentally, I'm not the only person who followed kids. Denise Pope did a wonderful book called Doing School. And there are other people who followed kids. But it's actually a very hard thing to do. I followed uh, high schoolers through some of the top public schools in Massachusetts, which is the top state public school states, so I was really the best of the best public schools. I followed kids through um, single-sex schools in Canada and some international schools. I followed boys through my own school. I've been the consultant at Belmont Hill for 10 years. I'd never followed a boy through a whole day. What an education to experience my own school the way I followed a boy on the second day. I saw some wonderful teaching, which was relieving. I saw one class of really quirky teaching which was kind of unnerving. <laughs> and I asked this boy at the end of the day, you've had two days at Belmont Hill, how would you change the school based on your two days? He said, I'd give kids uh, like two 15 minute breaks where they could get to be friends with each other. And I realized we, at this very traditional boys school, we had an adult in their face every minute of the day. Sit down lunch with the teacher to, there was an adult in their presence every day, and it was perfectly evident to him that it got in the way of his making friends, my school. And I hadn't, somehow hadn't seen it. But following a boy, I just I went, whoa, right? So here are my two insights and that I think are worth thinking about. The first is when you follow kids through school, and you're just living the life of a kid in school, and that's what I was trying to do. I was 55, but I was trying. Um, you realize it's not a competition. It's not about gold, silver, and bronze. It's not a race, because after you've been going to school with a bunch of kids, you know right where you stand, right? You know where you fall in your class. Do you remember that? If I showed you a picture of your fifth grade class, could you divide that photo in the top third of the class, the middle third, and the bottom third academically? I go to these precious schools and say, oh, we don't keep class rank. And I say, let me talk to the college counselor. Because of course you do. And everybody knows what it is. But actually kids know what it is. 
because they're living, they're living on the ground watching other kids grapple with problems. Is there somebody here who's real good at math? I've got an engineer or a mathematician. Come on, play with me, play with me. Come on. Nobody's good at math. Come on. Who is it? Thank you. Tell me your name. Jamie. Jamie. I need somebody like this because, or, uh, what's your profession? I'm an engineer. Engineer. You were good at math right from the get-go. So. Uh, Jamie, I had a 150-point gap in my SATs between my verbal and my quantitative, okay? I came from a family where my father had a degree in engineering from, civil engineering from MIT and a degree in architecture from the graduate school of design at Harvard. And I got the brain completely from my mother's family. <laughs> all, all writers, preachers, and politicians, right? But I didn't know that. I just knew I was a disappointment to my father in math. And that it, there were, well, Jamie, if you were in class with me, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, five years together, every time the teacher asked a math question, your hand's in the air before mine. Is that true? Probably. Yeah. And the teacher calls on you more because she doesn't want to demoralize the rest of us <laughs> with my bad answers, so she calls on you because you have a right answer, right? right. Um, but I'm sitting there thinking, how the hell does he know that? Why does his mind move in math much faster than mine? And I take my C plus, B minus, which was what I got in math, home. And maybe if my parents had read Amy Chua, the tiger mom, you know, in the Thompson family, we expect A's in math. What if they'd said that to me in fifth grade? What I would have said is, I wouldn't want to be rude to my parents, but I know what I'd be thinking. If you want A's in math, see Jamie. <laughs> he's going to be getting the A's in math and I'm not because I've been in class with him already and I know do you remember this do you remember remember knowing how other kids minds worked and how they challenged problems and where you stood in that all of your children know and here's the killer at Belmont Hill I've been there 24 years as their consultant Every year we have the same problem we cannot cure. Every year, 50% of our boys are in the bottom half of the class. <laughs> year after year after year. And, and we have parents who knows that their boys just squeaked in in seventh grade admissions, but two years later they're disappointed <laughs> because their kids are in the bottom half of the class. No, they're sometimes hammering us about that, right? Our boy hasn't made the progress we imagined. But wherever I go in the world, there's about a bottom half of the class. So I was at Shanghai American School, and I was speaking to about 500 parents, and there was the middle school director, Bernadette, there, and I was talking about some of these ideas. And I said to Bernadette, how many, um, this is a school of 2,700 kids on two campuses. So she had a big middle school, I can't remember, 600 kids. I said to Bernadette, how many kids come into the sixth grade at the 50th percentile of the sixth grade and leave your middle school at the end of eighth grade in the top 10%? How many kids move from the 50th percentile to the top 10 percentile of the eighth grade? And the answer is zero. 
And it's what Bernadette said. So I told the story at Hong Kong International School, and a mother came up to me and she said, Dr. Thompson, your talk has filled me with despair. I said, I'm so sorry. What did I say? She said, you said that story about kids in the bottom half of the class, and there's not much mobility up. And I said, no, there's not, if the group of kids stays the same. She said, well, that fills me with despair. And I said, well, you're going to have to think about your daughter's education another way. She's getting a superb education in Hong Kong International School. And she's developing enormous amount of skills and friends. And if you're rending your garments, what, what is that going to do to her? What is that going to do to her sense of herself or a sense of her learning? Because that's school, right? You know what I mean? You all in the top half of the class? I'm just asking. <laughs> just wondering, right? So it's not a competition. I mean, some of you, I'm, I, I'm, are you getting it? That's, I'm just teasing you a lot. Some of you were valedictorians, right? Some of you were number one in your high school class. And we're full of respect for you, but I'm going to be honest. We laughed at you behind your back. <laughs> because your journey through school had nothing to do with ours. We just weren't in the same realm of experience. You were duking it out with two other kids to the second decimal point. <laughs> and, and we were like, OK, whatever. Isn't that true? Do you remember that? And so when parents say, I wish you would work harder, or I wish you'd compare yourself, it is insane. It is insane for me to compare myself to Jamie in math, because I know that after four years of being in class with him. I can't psychologically. That's, I, you can't do that. I compare myself to the kids around me and my friends. And I want to kind of hold my position, because school is about survival and fit. That's what it's about. You remember that? OK? And the other thing is, adults are always talking about school as if it were pre preparation for life. Right? You're preparing for this. This is foundational. We're going to build on this. It's all building blocks. My math is building. Language is building, right? We're all building towards in college and like, like this. And this I know. And I met some of your kids today, not all of your kids. But I don't know them intimately. But this I know about your daughter or your son. She or he was living his or her life to the fullest today. They're not waiting to live. They're not preparing to live. School is not preparing to live. Your daughter's trying to be the best second grader she can be, the best fourth grader she can be, the best sixth grader she can be. And she wants to be cutting edge sixth grade. You know, when sixth grade girls say, we used to wear those things. We used to, we used to shop there. <laughs> we used to listen to that music, you know. You're behind. But kindergartners do that to each other. You're a baby. No, I'm not. The biggest insult against kids is you're not developing the way the rest of us are. Every kid is in there trying to develop. They're trying to develop. And they're trying to survive. And they're trying to develop by, in my book, I use eight lines of development. It's a very old theory. Anna Freud had a lines of development theory. But I think of it as like those little Mario characters scrambling up the ladders. And they're always at a different place on different eight little ladders, you know, the physical and athletic development. And kids, kids do that on their own. 
Second grade girls stand at a bus stop and they're balancing. Girls have better balance than boys. And boys are just pushing each other, a little more muscular in there. But I was walking, I went uh, just two weeks ago, I was up visiting my daughter in Littleton, New Hampshire, and we went to pick up my granddaughter, Aubrey, who's in first grade. And she had said, I, she told her mom, my daughter, that she liked to walk with pop-up. And I said, why don't you drop me off at school, I'll pick her up. My, my daughter had to vouch for me, you know, can't be some strange old guy showing up and picking up the, so my daughter, uh, we got the girls, and then my four-year-old daughter wanted to walk with us too, so Aubrey and Brinley and I were walking, and the girls wanted to jump on these high walls and walk on the wall, you know, which was a challenge to get up there, and so challenge and balance, and the six-year-old was very proud, wanted no help, and the four-year-old needed help up, but she wanted to follow her sister, and they were challenging themselves physically. And athletically, you don't always need everything coached. You don't need summer camps. You don't need clinics. Because kids want to be good physically. Kids want to have the social life they want. They want the friends they want. And they're always, always evaluating whether they're in the right relation to adults. Am I too close to the teacher? Am I a teacher's pet? Am I too far away from the teacher? Does she not or he not like me? Do I have the friends that are always assessing their own social lives? They're always trying to solve problems. Jean Piaget, the great Swiss psychologist, showed us that, that we're problem-solving creatures. And from the moment a child drops a stick into a river and watches it go and then drops other things to see if they'll move as fast and does experiments and damming water, that every, little, every child's a little scientist. They are right from the beginning. And they're solving problems outside school. Sometimes problems that are much more interesting, for instance, than homework. They're learning. And one of the things we have these days, we have a lot of kids, boys especially, who are solving problems on computers outside school that they find more interesting than the problems they're solving inside school. We want them to get, leave the computers and do their homework, but they're often feeling like more effective learners and more self-directed learners in these arenas. But that's natural. Oh, there's also academic learning. I mean, kids need to learn to write, and they learned, need uh, to learn good English and they need to read and comprehend and compute and analyze and be critical thinkers, all good, all good. But from a child's point of view, it's only one line of development and they're working on all of these lines. And among the most important is emotional self-regulation. And when you send a child to a fairly accelerated and intense independent school, the experience for the child is often that we give you stuff you've never seen before. And the moment you master it, we pull it away and give you more stuff you've never seen before. The moment you master that, we give you more stuff you've never seen before and more stuff you've never seen before. And the better you are, the faster it comes, right? Yes, it's like drinking from a fire hose. And then we learn you have a learning disability. You have a little weakness. So we send you twice a week to remedial help. Right, where we rub your nose in your weakness and you don't seem grateful or happy about it, right? 
That's school. And that school, those are fine schools. We have to do that. But my friend Ned Hallowell says, no one leads their adult life in the area of their remediated childhood weaknesses. Oh no, the moment you get out of school, you go for your strengths and you minimize your weaknesses. Yes, doesn't that describe your job? Certainly describes mine. I, I live in the area of my strengths, which is verbal and writing. And I get uncomfortable if I'm outside of that. Nobody wants to be in their area of weakness, but we put kids in it all the time. We're banging on their weaknesses. There are just very few people. I've seen thousands of psychological testing profiles. There are very few people who have a brain that's just right like that, you know, strong in everything. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Most of us have a hole in our brain. And when we were a kid in school, we kept tripping and falling in the hole in our brain. So this preparation for life, um, they're doing the best they can. And, and I was talking about this preparation for life once, and a, a mother in Wilmette, Illinois, came up to me. And she said, I think I have a story that illustrates your point. And she had really quite a powerful story. Her seventh grade daughter was in a middle school, and somebody called in a bomb hoax. And by rule, they had to evacuate the school. They had kids on the lawn, took hours to get all the parents to pick them up. It was a real mess. Made the mom pretty anxious. And she knew that it probably had made her daughter pretty anxious, because her daughter's a pretty anxious kid. So the mom thought as she was driving her daughter home, I'll give her a mental health day tomorrow if she needs it. This is a new thing with parents, mental health days. It's always, uh, I'm always curious about who the mental health day is. Never mind. Um, but the mother went, she checked the website, and they said the school had been searched. It would be open the next. She went to her seventh grade daughter, and she said, sweetie, they say school will be open tomorrow. Um, how do you feel about going? How do you feel about the bomb thing? And her daughter said, I'm going. And the mother said, well, I mean, sweetie, but the bomb. And her daughter said, mom, if a bomb went off in school and I wasn't there, all my friends would be killed and I'd be left alone. She said, if something bad happens, I want to be with my friends. And the mother thought, you would want to be with me. <laughs> but that not that seventh grade girl, right? Living and dying with my friends. I'm sorry, that's it. And that's what a middle schooler is about. That's what I mean, they're living their lives. So how do you know when you're a kid that you're developing on track? Well, you're watching everybody else and you're trying to keep up. But how do you know if you're successful? How do you know you're a successful kid? And I have three ways that I want you to think about the success of children, no matter where they are in their grade. Yeah, it's not good to fail. Kids are failing. That's bad for them. You need to get a tutor, get some help. But wherever they are, what a kid needs to be a success in school is connection, recognition, and a sense of mastery or power. Okay? Connection, recognition, sense of power. I've got lonely, isolated boys at Belmont Hill who are A-plus students and are going to go to elite colleges, and I'm quite worried about them because they're not connected. 
I can see them getting depressed in college because I know we've graduated some kids who've, brilliant kids who've crashed and burned, isolated in college. The kids who have friends, who have meaningful relationships with adults, I'm much less worried about them. So I want kids connected, connected to a community, connected to feeling like I'm part of Harbor Day community. Huh? That's connected. I want a kid who's recognized for something. My daughter, Joanna, is dyslexic. She's never tested anything but moderate to seriously dyslexic. Language does not work very well for her. She has two adoptive parents, both of whom have PhDs, both of whom are psychologists. Isn't this like we're the nightmare parents? <laughs> two late life adoptive parent psychologists. <laughs> Teachers have nightmares about the couple that Teresa and I are. And at the same time, my daughter was a gifted athlete in a way that I never was. She played 12 seasons of varsity sports in high school. She was captain of two teams. She played on an ice hockey team with two girls. She wasn't quite as good as they were, but who went off and played for the US Olympic team. Megan Duggan was the, somebody I knew very well on my daughter's ice hockey team. And my daughter lived through school, lived through the morning, which was an agony and the constant bath of language and writing and writing and writing. And she lived to get out on the field. It meant so much to her. And I wrote quite a bit about her in uh, The Pressured Child because they're the pressures that fall on a learning disabled kid and how she survived in school. So I wrote, I told her I was gonna write about her in the book and I finished the manuscript and before I sent it off to Ballantine Books, I went to Joanna, she was 19 at the time, and I said, sweetie, I've written about you in the manuscript. Before I send it in, I need you to read it. And she said, do I have to? <laughs> right? And when your child is struggling in school, you, you can see no future for them. Because if they're struggling with language in fourth grade and elementary school, three quarters language based, you're just pulling your hair out. If you're a pair of parents who are very good at that, at language, it's really brutal. And nobody tells you, you know, your daughter can be a manager for the Omni Hotel Corporation. She can run the main dining room at the Mount Washington Hotel and supervise 40 people. My daughter at 33 has hired and fired many more people than I have. And I had never seen a dining hall the way I saw it after my daughter was there, because it's like the playing field, constantly moving, constantly watching the flow of the play. There's actually a place for kids in the world of work but when they're in school, you, you get, it all seems like school, and it seems like the correlation between schools, one-to-one -one with success in life. And that's where you start to go crazy, and your kids start to go crazy, because they're trapped in school too, huh? So connection, recognition. One more thing about recognition. I, I did a tour of boys' schools in Australia, and I had my DVD from the PBS documentary I made, Raising Cain about America's boys, but I hadn't known about the zones, the different world zones of DVD. So I went to Australia with this American Zone DVD and couldn't play it on any damn computer. And it was a huge part of my talk at these boys' schools. You can reconfigure a Mac to play an out-of-zone thing, but it's a pretty tricky thing to do. And I couldn't do it, and I had IT guys and AV people struggle with it. It'd be 10 minutes before my lecture. They couldn't get my DVD going. 
I wanted to show this film clip. I was feeling a little desperate. And the IT director of a school, boys' school in Australia would say, someone go to class and get, get Cameron. And Cameron would emerge, 15-year-old boy. He'd come up, we'd explain the problem to him, and he'd go like this. And it was done, and he'd walk away. And one uh, IT teacher said to me, as the back of his Cameron was disappearing down the hall, he said, he's not a very good student. I thought, who cares? <laughs> you see, we just did, and everybody in the school knows. Everybody in the school knows you go to Cameron, right? He's got recognition. And I was telling this story once at Armonk, New York, and I'd forgotten that three kids had wired me up with my lavalier mic and give me a hand mic and got the lights and everything else. It was kids. And I was telling the Cameron story, and I looked in the booth, the glass booth in the back, and I had two boys and a girl in the back, and they were jumping up and down going, that's us, that's us. We're the techies, right? If your child is connected and recognized, and if your child then has a growing sense of mastery, a growing sense of power. So at Belmont Hill, we no longer give Fs. You can't fail with an F. It used to be if you got two Fs, you weren't invited back. And we give you white slips as a warning. We don't do that anymore. Now, if you have two Ds, we give you white slips. And if you have two Ds at the end of the year, we don't invite you back. It's great inflation. But we don't actually fail you. We just don't invite you back. Uh, the D is the new F. And a boy was sent to me, a ninth grade boy, and he had two Ds. He was a new boy at our school. We have kids come in seventh and also ninth. And he was sent to me and to talk about what we were gonna do about this. And I said to him, so how do you find Belmont Hill? He said, this is a very hard school. And I said, and you've got these uh, two white slips. He said, yeah. He said, this is a very hard school. I said, um, where were you in school before? He said, Westford, public schools, middle school. I said, do you have friends back in Westford? He said, yeah, they're in Westford High. I said, what grades are they getting? And he said, A's, B's, and they're not working nearly as hard as I am. I said, well, do you want to stay? And he said, yeah. I said, well, why? And he said, well, all my friends are here now. OK, connection. I said, any other reasons? Teachers? He named two teachers. He said, I think the teachers are better here. And he named two meaningful teachers to him. I said, anything else? He said, lacrosse. I'm good. And the coach is amazing. And I might make it in 10th grade. Right? I said, OK. And I said, but the work. He said, I know. He said, I'm working twice as hard as I ever thought I could. It was a note of pride. Did you hear it? I thought, he's OK. He's passed my connection, recognition, and a growing sense of mastery. He's, he may never be anything but the bottom quarter of our class. But he is, he's going to be fine at our school. I was once on a plane and ran into the dean of admissions at Occidental. And uh, she said, I, I used to cover New England for Occidental when I was just an associate. And I came to Belmont Hill. We, we had very few kids from Belmont Hill, where kids mainly stay in New England. I, she said, I had very 
few kids from Belmont Hill ever came to Occidental, and the ones who came were bottom quarter of the class. They were so disciplined. They were so hardworking. They were so successful. Right? That's what we do, Belmont Hill. That's what we do. We produce a disciplined student, just not all in the top half of the class. So when I was writing the book, I was thinking, what is school? It is a long distance hike. It is a long, long hike, 13 years, right? Now, if you were going to do a long distance hike, I, I, I hike in the White Mountains every year. And I see the kids who started in, at the bottom of the Appalachian Mountain Trail in February. In the mountains of Georgia, they're in the snow in February. I see them passing through the White Mountains. They look like gazelles. They're amazing. They got 30-pound packs, and they are just moving 25 miles a day, bing, bing, trying to get to Mount Katahdin in Maine before the snow starts to fall there at the end of August. And they zip by me, and I'm there with my poles, and I'm thinking, I wish I'd done that. I wish I'd done that when the AT when I was younger, before I had two knee surgeries, when I was a lot thinner. But I'm hiking for a week. So if you were going to do an endurance hike, I don't care if it's two days, two weeks, two months, pick an endurance hike and tell me what's the most important thing you need. This is not rhetorical. What's the most important thing you need for your endurance hike? What? All right. I got my answer right away. Very often when I go in independent school, they say, motivation, drive, friends, <laughs> maps, right? And the answer is shoes that fit, right? Have you read Cheryl Strayed's book, Wild? Right? There are pages about her bloody feet and her boots. I mean, her boots are such a character, the boots that don't fit. But when kids come into school, about a third of them, in my experience, put on the school shoe, try as we might, it's still kind of one size fits all. Even with differentiated teaching and all of our efforts, that's the way kids experience it. And about a third of kids put on that shoe and it just fits beautifully. Oh my gosh. You get five-year-olds and they get to kindergarten and they think, oh my God, I've been waiting for this all of my life. <laughs> this is amazing. We sit in a circle, the teacher reads, she asks us questions, we get share time, we have jobs. Sometimes I get to be line leader. I mean, this is amazing. And then there's that autodidact girl who's already reading, already reading kindergarten and wants to just sit and read all day. And she finds it alarming. There are all these boys running around, <laughs> disrupting her, right? She actually finds the kindergarten classroom kind of alarming. About a third kid of kids come into school, and the school shoe fits perfectly. They've got a school mind, and off they go. And those kids, we need to keep them from going crazy with their perfectionism. We need them to get sleep. And we need not to drive them. They're driving themselves. And we need them to help balance their lives. A kid who can't leave the house because she's got to do her homework every Sunday from the beginning to the end. No, she needs to see her grandparents. She needs to go out. She needs a little recreation because there are super conscientious, you know, just absolutely God-given students. I, I had a a woman in New Jersey once, and her son was so gifted. Everybody knew he was just a powerhouse. And everybody knew by the time he was 14, he was headed for an elite college. He was just a superb student. And, but she was thinking, it's not enough. And she got all these brochures for internships, <coughs> summer internships that would be 
impressive to college admissions people, but she hadn't shown them to him yet. She was in her office going through all the brochures. And he, they had for years, all the years, he was a little boy gone up to a lake in Vermont. He had friends. He'd been thinking he'd get a summer job up in Vermont, <clears throat> hang around the lake. And he came and he saw his mother with all these internship brochures. And he looked at her and he said, Mom, Mom, I'm not going to be gifted in the summer. <laughs> and she put him in the waste paper basket. Mom, I'm not going to be gifted year round. Right? I need a break. But that's what we need for those kids. Then there are the kids like my daughter, where school, there was this huge hole she fell in, but she felt successful, even though her grades were not great, but she was known and she got a good education in a fine independent school. And I'm very proud of her, very proud of her. But as a psychologist, I see the kids at the risk of kids, the bottom third of the class who fall into fury and despair and hate the place. And, and I have a big battle with some parents where Belmont Hill is just not working for a boy, but the parents are so in love with the place, they just cannot see. They cannot see that this isn't working for their child. And so I have to use verbs. I say that we're crushing your son. People that my teachers in my school don't like it when I use verbs like that. They think it's hyperbolic. I think it's accurate, actually. And when I wrote pressured child, I went and interviewed kids at Boston Evening Academy, a, a public pilot school in Boston that takes kids who were truant or dropped out of high school in ninth or 10th grade. And you can go back and finish high school at 18, 19, or 20. And I interviewed a bunch of kids, kids, young adults practically, who had just hated school but were now back in it. And they went to Boston Evening Academy, a, a school that runs from 4.30 in the afternoon till 9.30 at night. Does anybody here know a high schooler who might prefer a school that runs from 4.30 in the afternoon to 9.30 at night? Yeah, like a ton, right? We run schools for our own convenience in our family lives. There are other ways to run schools, and there are kids who need to be in alternative high schools. And there are some kids who just essentially tear off the hiking boot of school and throw it and, and give up. A third of boys, 33% of boys who start the ninth grade in New York public schools do not graduate. If you're running a business, you lost a third of your customers, you might think, right? We should be doing something different. Now, people think I'm a big school reformer, and I'm not. I'm a clinical psychologist. I observe what's there. I believe about schools what Winston Churchill said about democracy. It's a deeply flawed form of government, just better than anything else we've tried. That's what I believe about schools. Deeply flawed human institutions staffed by really good people trying to make it as good as they can for kids, but deeply flawed and sometimes quite hard on some kids. That's my view. So what do you do about it? I'm going to tell you one more story. I was coming out of a school once, and the principal and I were talking. And there was a teacher there in running gear, a tall, lean guy. And she said he's a runner, and he runs at the end of every day, and he comes back and changes, and he helps kids, gives them extra help. 
So we went over and chatted with his teacher. And he said two ninth grade girls had asked to run with him. And he was waiting for them. It was taking him a long time to get their outfits. And then the two ninth grade girls came out and they started running with this guy. Well, he started running his usual pace. It was way too fast for them. They were chugging to keep up. They got winded. He could hear that. So they slowed down. He slowed down. Then they slowed down to a walk. And then he walked with them for a while until they got their breath back. And they started up. And the principal and I got in our car. It was about a two-thirds of a mile driveway. We watched the whole drama. And when we finally passed them, the two ninth grade girls were running at a sustainable pace. No question, faster than they would have run if the two of them had gone out to run alone. That's why they asked to run with the teacher. And the teacher was running one half step off their shoulder, maybe a quarter step. He's right there. They could hear his footfalls. They could hear his breath. He was setting some kind of expectation, but he was a quarter off. He wasn't so far in front, he was demoralizing them. He wasn't so far in back, you know, he was patronizing them. He was right there. And that actually is the right position for you to be when your children are going to school. And it's hard from year to year and subject to subject to know where a quarter step off your child's shoulder is. But that, that is where you have to be. Because to know everything about your child's school situation, to have a ton of information, to be on top of every little thing, to check every little assignment. Really? So I'm going to give you a quiz or a challenge. I want you to be in 10th grade again. You're 15 in your high school, right? Can you picture yourself? High school 15, okay? What percentage of your day, social, academic, extracurricular, your fantasy life, what percentage of your day did your mother know about? Put a number on it. What percentage of your day did your mother know about? 5%. 5 5%. Seven, seven kids, she just, it was too much information, right? Where were you in the sip ship? Oh, well, by that time, they'd given up and just turned you over to your <laughs> brothers and sisters. Um, so whatever number you gave, people generally give 5, 10, maybe 20%. And then I ask this, if your mother had known twice as much, would it have made any difference in your school journey? Would it have changed what kind of student you were? No, because by 10th grade, you'd been at it actually for 11 years. And you were doing school the way you were doing school based on your own experience. And you were, you felt strong in some places and you felt kind of beat up in some other places. And your children will feel that too. That has not changed. That's the psychological reality of school. Is that depressing? I don't think it is actually. I don't think it is. I once had a senior boy stand up at a, a function ahead of me. Kevin McCarty was a school hero. Three varsity sports, early admit to an Ivy League college, but he also survived severe blood poisoning, which almost killed him. And it, for a while, he was so weak, he couldn't walk upstairs, so we brought his classes to a ground level. And he slowly got better. And his mother, proud mother, head of our PTA, was in the front row. And this is what he said to an audience of parents. 
He said, no one knows how much I've loved Belmont Hill. No one knows how much I've hated Belmont Hill. My journey through school has been a mystery to everyone but me. And I thought, damn, he just gave my whole talk in three sentences. <laughs> Do I have some questions to answer? I'm done, actually. This is, this is a philosophical talk more than anything. Was it helpful? Did I bum you out? Yes. Was your hand up? No? Okay. Any questions? Where does this leave you? Yes, Burke. What did you, what did you say to uh, the kids today? My daughter's in fourth grade. What, what, when well, it's, it's a double secret assembly. So we're driving home from her stressed out day. Yes. Today, and uh, I asked something about what it was, and then she said, well, something about friends and social pressure and stuff like that. Yeah. And I go, oh, well, I go, well, did you tell him what I taught you? That if you want friends, be a friend. I've been telling her that since kindergarten. Yeah. She's, without, a, without hesitation, she goes, Dad, that's old information. There's new information. Oh, Burke, I have the new information. It's definitely <laughs> very, very new. You can tell. Oh, what a smackdown, huh? <laughs> Dad, old information. You have nothing to contribute to my social life. Yeah, it's harsh, isn't it? It is harsh. You know, they're not asking us a lot of advice about their social lives. That's true. We are offering a lot, but they're not asking. And that's nothing against us. It's just they want to find it out on their own. Any questions? Please, please, yes. Let's go to the example of you and Jamie. Jamie, yeah, the brilliant mathematician, yes. Yes. is a lot easier than figuring out you're good in school. So how does a parent find your strengths and sort of help buoy that, sort of help that along? Tell me your name. Adele. Adele, do you, do you mean how does a parent find out a child's academic strengths? No, so his strength is more quantifiable because it shows up in report cards. Right. Your strengths may not be so quantifiable, right? Right. Well, they showed up. I did very well in writing and, and always. So I, you know, humanities, I, I was always knocking that out of the park. But it gave me an uneven report card. That's true. Did you have an uneven report card? The question is for you, not no, for no, me. No, no, <laughs> no. Adele, you're, you're talking to a psychologist. This is my game. After high school, no, I actually had very good grades in college. It, well, after high school, you had very solid grades. You, in college, you were studying something you chose. Yeah. You were free to choose. It was yours, and you knew where it was leading. Yes. And it was relevant. Yes. So you dug in. And no, it wasn't relevant, but I had solid grades. It was grades. relevant to what you liked, right? Yes. Yeah. But high school, not so much, huh? Not so much. Yeah. So what do you want, so ask me again. Like, you want to, how can a parent do what? How can a parent figure out what he or she can do to bring out those things in a child that are not so easily tangible, graspable? Math is easy to right. help along figure out your homework. Even writing to some extent is, but there are many things that 
can't be quantified, like creativity. I used to be a patent attorney, and many, many of our clients, I work for a, for a big New York law firm. Right. And many of our clients, and I, our, our firm, I work for the branch that was next to Stanford University. Yeah. Were actually not very good as students. Yes. And they were just brilliant. Yes. So how do you, how do you spot that? Yeah. And my child is six years old right yeah. now. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you know, you know and it I may be that Jamie is the wizard. You know, I'm not I saying would, that math No, is but I was, I was once consulting to a school in Palo Alto, and a father had told the school he's very disappointed that they didn't recognize the entrepreneurial uh, uh, gifts of his child. The, the administrators told me this. I said, how old is this child? They said, kindergarten. <laughs> I, I, I don't, just don't know if you can recognize entrepreneurial gifts yeah. uh, in kindergarten, but he was disappointed. Um, uh, they actually thought he kind of had a spacey kindergarten boy, uh, and maybe that's what turned you into a, you know, a genius. It, it's hard because they're developing, and what you want to do is put them in a lot of arenas and then let the things go where they're not shining and try and follow them in their areas of interest. Um, uh, and uh, see, but you have to throw them in. You know, I, I had a fancy pants upbringing on the Upper East Side of New York and I went to collegiate school for boys and I had a superb education, very traditional, very scary. And then my parents larded on all sorts of things. I flamenco guitar I took from some Russian teacher. I trudging around with my guitar. And, and then that my parents got me drawing lessons at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the most fantastic waste of money. My Saturday mornings at the Metropolitan Museum, no talent whatsoever. And, but eventually, you know, through putting me in a variety of experiences, I started to shine in certain arenas, different from my brother, different from my younger sister. And, but it's only over time that you see. And you're not actually always the first to know when you're the parent. It's a teacher who says, well, there's, you know, she's really good at, whoa, she's better than all the other kids in the class, or she really has a spark here, and you go, oh. But what I want in a school is an enriched environment so it's not just math and the, the, and, and the humanities, but there's creativity. So I walk around this school, uh, as Angie knows, and Susan has been guiding me in that, you know, I got excited about woodworking here, I got excited about the art on the walls. There, there are things I saw here that make me think this would be a, a school that would provide a, a universe of experimentation and success in a wide variety of, of areas. Um, and that's where the parent conversation about elite colleges um, is suffocating and narrow, right? Because actually most parents in independent schools don't for the first 11 years talk about the Savannah College of Art as a place their child might go. You know, or to be a ceramist, ceramicist at the greatest college of ceramics in the United States, which is Alfred College in upstate New York. But I have known kids from my school whose life was saved 
at my boys' school by finding ceramics and going to Alfred, and we had to talk their parents off a ledge. You know what I mean? And so that's, that's the work of educators, and that's the work of school. Does that reassure you a bit? I'm not the only one who thinks this way. Thank you. Thank you. One more. Come on, come on, come on. You're the worst. You've done this twice now. Um, to piggyback off what Jennifer said earlier and uh, what he just said, um, our community, our school, is very invested in the whole child. Yes. Uh, Susan and Angie introduced a whole like emotional yep. component. Social, to emotional, our, yeah, yeah. yeah. We have a whole new class, and it's great, a really positive thing. Um, and it's in a reaction to the pressures that you went through also as a kid, mm -hmm. living in Newport Beach, and living, I'm sure, in the Upper East Side. I don't know. I'm not from... Manhattan? Place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a hell. What Same. can I say? <laughs> Just like Newport. Um, to live here, and our kids see this, and when we look at our kids and what they say, they, where they see themselves in 15 years, they all see themselves living on the beach in Newport with their perfect spouse and two kids and dog. Yep. And, and that's haunting. I'm a teacher here. Yep. You saw that already in eighth grade. And when I see that and I think like, some of these kids figure out really early that, that what that actually costs yep. and, and how difficult that is to attain. So you're talking about helping find these other passions and how a whole school does it, but as a community, like as a whole Harbor Day, parents, admin, teachers, how, how do we continue to convey that message that success doesn't have to be just your Ivy Leagues? Because obviously you being right in Cambridge, right next to Harvard, I mean, Oh, no, it's like it gives no off doubt. a radioactive glow. Right. That affects I have us no all. doubt. I mean, they, on Wait, the East Coast, they talk about West Coast schools as But you Eden made schools. me realize I've missed a little piece of my uh, uh, speech I always ask, but it's going to speak to Chad's point. How many of you here, or, uh, raise your hand, please. How many of you here went to an elite college? Come on, raise your hands up high if you went to an elite college. Come on, I want to see him. If by any definition you went to an elite college, I want you to raise your hand. Come on, play with me. I've got more of you. There are a few more than that. Come on, now hold them up for a second. I want all the rest of the people to see us. <laughs> this is it. This is it. All right, let's see. The elite college group, okay? It's maybe 10%, generously. So I want to say this to the rest of you. They have How to go to USC, though. No, what? Yeah. <laughs> for the rest of you, who didn't go to an elite college, how, how do you get out of bed in the morning? <laughs> how, how, how do you do the work of the world? I don't understand it, right? But this is a joke because the vast majority of parents who send their child to a school like this and sometimes get swept up in the stampede for elite expectations themselves did not have this life. And we have to get a little philosophical distance. Sometimes a boy, I had a boy at Seven Hill School in Cincinnati, and he said, senior boy, he said to me with some distress in his voice, my father keeps saying I have to go to an elite college to have a good life. And, and I guess I believe him. And I said, no, but you have some doubt, why? And he said, because my father went to the University of Dayton. 
and I think he has a very good life. You know, sometimes they have to fight their way out of our, the trap of our assumptions. And our assumptions sometimes means we've forgotten our own school experience. So that's why I was trying to take you back to the gritty reality of school. Thanks. Thank you all for coming tonight. Thank you. Sure, sure. My brother went to Belmont Hill. Did he? Graduated, yeah. He's like 49 now, so I think he missed you. He did. You were yeah. There, he was there before you. Well, I've been there 24 years.